This summer, L.L. Bean invites you to simply step outside and enjoy the fresh air and sunshine. We'll be your guide with tips and advice to get more out of every moment outdoors. Here's a trick to estimate how much time you have left outside before the sun sets. Stretch out your arm and hold your hand sideways, palm facing you. Every finger between the horizon and the sun is 15 minutes of daylight. For more fun ideas, easy how-tos, and inspiring stories, visit llbean.com guide. For the new explorer, planning a visit to a national park or even several on a big road trip can be a daunting task. I'm Jason Epperson, and today on America's National Parks, I'm talking with Jennifer Melroy, a national park lover who has visited nearly all of the 63 main parks and shares her tips and advice over at nationalparkobsessed.com. I talked with Jennifer about the broad strokes of planning a national park visit, pitfalls to avoid, and her resources for helping you get the best out of your trip. Jennifer, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Let's start by talking about your journey into the world of national parks. What first got you excited about national parks and how did you become national park obsessed? So I actually, I was six months old to my first national park. Um, I live 45 minutes from Great Smoky Mountains National Park. Yet my first national park was Mount Rainier. My parents are kite flyers, so we were at a kite flyer convention. And they took me to Mount Rainier and it sort of spiraled from there. We went to a Yellowstone in 96, right after they released wolves. We got to see wolves as a six-year-old. That was one of the most exciting things in the world. And then it just, we visited here and there throughout high school and whatnot. And then my freshman year of college, I decided that I didn't want to do a traditional internship. I decided I wanted to work in a national park for the summer. And then on top of that, I wanted to road trip out there. So 19, I decided I was going to road trip from Florida to Mount Rainier. Didn't quite think all that through, but along the way, I stopped at Yellowstone again. And there I ran into a couple who had just finished visiting all the national parks. And I went, oh my, this is something I want to do. So I decided I wanted to visit the mall before I turned 30. I didn't quite realize what I was getting myself into, you know, having to go to American Samoa, the eight, nine trips to Alaska. It's taken me to get to all the Alaska parks. And then it just, one year I was road tripping up to Alaska and I was frustrated with Theodore Roosevelt National Park because there was so little information on the park. And I had questions about some of one of the longer hikes in the park. And I was like, I have all this information. And that's kind of how I started my blog and my journey on teaching people how to visit the national parks. I think people have some trepidation when they're first getting into the idea of visiting national parks because they don't necessarily know what to expect or even know what a national park is. So how, how do you start talking to somebody about figuring out their journey? They're like, I want to see Yellowstone and Grand Teton, but I don't know what to do. How do you how do you sort of start the process about uh, what the scope of their trip is even going to be? The biggest thing for me is start with what do you want to do? I mean, I get that, you know, a lot of people are like, I want to go to a park in March and they don't quite know, well, do I want to go do this? It's like, start with 
what kind of season do you want to be in? Do you want to hike in cold? Do you want to hike in snow? Do you want to go hang out on a beach? Once you kind of decide where you want to spend your time, it gets a little easier to start picking out, okay, I want to do this park. How do I get there? Most parks have one, maybe two airports that you really kind of want to fly into. Uh, for example, using your example, Grand Tetons and Yellowstone, you probably want to fly into, well, there's three main options there, is West Yellowstone, Jackson, Wyoming, or you want to fly into Bozeman. And those are kind of your three airports. And you start planning, get that airport, get your ticket set, and then start figuring out what you want to do within that park. And, you know, it might be, okay, I want to hike um, with Yellowstone. I want to go see wildlife. And then start figuring out kind of where you want to spend your time and just start. I mean, biggest thing is book the tickets. Book your tickets and mm-hmm. book your hotels. Once you do that, Everything else is just filling it in. Most parks, you're not, you don't have to worry about, um, you know, booking tours and things like that. You can do tours. It's an option, but it's not something you have to do to explore a park. Pretty much, no, you don't have to book a tour to explore any park except some of the Alaska ones, and we're just going to ignore those. (laughs) Alaska's a whole whole different ballgame. How much do you think people should plan out their trip though versus like winging it like i'm like going to site the individual sites in a park like what they want to do on an individual day do you think it's worth it for them to sort of be that obsessive planner and and hourly plan out their days or should they sort of be open to the experience of just finding what they like in a park i'm very much a wing it kind of person i'll have an outline for the day but my outlines, um, I have yet to go into Yellowstone and do more than half my plan because I end up getting into Lamar Valley and find the wolves and I never leave. You know, but you, you can have a plan, but if you've got an hour by hour outline, you don't have time and you get so stuck on that plan that you drive by the bear in Smokies and don't stop and take in the fact that there's a black bear. I mean, for most people seeing a black bear for the first time, is really cool. Um, in the spring in the Smokies, the people who drive by a bear and don't stop, because if you'd spend five more minutes watching, you might get to see the spring cubs come out. Because mom will usually pop out and it'll take a minute or two for her to convince the cubs that they should come out because they're new, they're distractible, they're toddlers. You know, and it's spent, I mean, be willing to be a little patient. And, you know, if you want to stop and spend the day watching the mom with the spring cubs where you can see them, do that. If that's what you want to do in your park, great. You want to, you know, spend 10, 15 minutes watching that and then go move on to go hike something else. That's great, but be willing to stop. And then like with a big park like Yellowstone, you just have to factor in the bison because when the bison decide they want to cross the road, they're going to cross the road and you do not want to play chicken with your car and a bison. The bison will win. So you're one of the admins in our America's National Parks group with us. And I know you see the same thing that I see all the time. And I'm sure people have talked to you about this in various other forums that they're maybe they're from the East and they're making their big Western road trip for the first time. And they've got two weeks and they have a list of 14 parks that they want to visit. And they're trying to cram them in as much as possible 
when you make a trip, I'm curious yourself and what you recommend for other people. How much time do you allot to visit a, a single park? I recommend at least one full day. But, you know, if you've only got a half day or it's a smaller park like um, Petrified Forest um, in Arizona and you only want to spend a half day, do that. I'm, I'm a big fan of is this is your trip and do it the way you want. The thing is, when you're trying to cram 14 parks into 14 days, it's exhausting. I've done, been there. I've done that. It's utterly exhausting. You spend so much time in a car. You just sort of forget what you're seeing and you don't have time to enjoy anything. So, you know, try to spend at least one full day in a park because then you get a chance to experience things and you don't have to run around the country with it like a chicken with your head cut off because that's what you yeah. do when you try to fit you know 14 parks into 14 days it just doesn't work well there's a level of of scale too that varies so dramatically from park to park right some of them are very easy to drive through in a half day like a petrified forest but but yellowstone just driving the loop road without stopping is going to take you several hours it's going to take you four to six hours just to do that, do the whole loop road without stops. And you will, there will be stops. You will get into at least one bison jam and at least one bear jam. But we do not get out and get close to the bison. We do no. not pet fluffy cows. <laughs> I, and yeah, it has been a rough year, hasn't it? People don't realize they do think they are like cows. Not that you should really go up to a cow and pet it either, because there's a good chance that it's going to kick you where you don't want it to kick you. But but bison, those are very strong and fast mammals. Yes. Let's uh, let's talk about some of the other the mistakes, the pitfalls that people might make when they're figuring out their trip for the first time big thing is, is if there's an alert on the park service site that says is alert whatever read that park service puts out alerts for a reason it could be road construction um most of the parks have significant road construction that needs to be done and they're working on doing it is sometimes very annoying to discover that they have closed the road you need but they do it because they've got to do the construction at some point and you can only pave roads during warm weather so read, read any of the alerts. If you're trolling into a park and park service has made a handout, I know for a while Yellowstone was handing out bright yellow pages that said, do not pet the bison. It, park service <laughs> does not spend the time and effort to make a handout to give to you for no reason. Um, another big one is fill your gas tank before you enter a park. There are very few parks that have a gas station in the park. And even if they do have a gas station in the park, it will be at least a dollar, if not two or three dollars more expensive to fill your tank in the park than outside the park. There's always people showing the, the photos of the, the sign at the, uh, the gas station outside of Death Valley because it's consistently the most expensive in the nation. And it's much more expensive than filling an hour outside. Yeah. I mean, it, with Death Valley, with how big that park is, you will probably have to fill your gas tank at least once in that park. But at least if you start with a full tank, that's a couple gallons less you have to buy in the park. That leads me to talking about rental cars and um, 
uh, or your personal car uh, and, and hotels and all that. National parks are often not in an area where there's a lot of services around. So what are some of the issues with like flying in, but still being several hours away and actually getting a, uh, getting a rental car in a, a place where maybe there aren't a lot of them? The big thing is right now, the amount of rental cars there are to rent is at an all-time low. So you need to book your rental car. I mean, I would book your rental car before your flights. You know, make sure you get wow. that rental car. And if you can, book direct with the rental car companies, not through a third-party aggregate like um, Kayak or anything, because the companies are going to prioritize the renters who paid them directly. And it has happened. It will happen where people show up and there are no rental cars and you can't get another rental car because like you fly into some airports, there may only be one or two rental car companies. And if they're out of cars, you're out of cars. And outside of a handful of parks, there is no public transport to the parks or within the parks. So book your rental cars as soon as possible. Um, I always recommend trying to fly into the bigger airports because you'll get better flight options and you'll have better rental car selections. And there's some more options if something goes awry with your rental car reservation. And it sucks to have to drive a couple hours. But I mean, look at flying into um, Isle Royal. If you're flying into Isle Royal and the Michigan size, there are two flights a day into that, into the closest airport. And then you're still... 30 minutes driving to catch the ferry that if you miss those flights, you're SOL, you're SOL for a day, two days. Um, I met somebody who works up in that area and she wants, it was a week and a half till she could get another flight in. When you figure out lodging there, you know, you have lots of options. Obviously you can um, stay in a lot of the gateway communities that exist around national parks, especially the, the bigger ones. And then sometimes you have the option of staying within the park, uh, whether you're a camper or if you're getting some lodging. A lot of national parks have lodges of various sizes and qualities. What's it like to actually stay in a national park lodge? There is something really cool about being able to wake up in Old Faithful Inn and look out your bedroom window in the morning and see Old Faithful erupt from your hotel room window. It is really cool. That said, you're paying for that privilege. It is. I think last time I looked, I think it was like $600 a night. I can remember paying $150. So it's, it's, if your budget allows for it, it's a great experience. But if you're having to pick between spending an extra day of travel and staying in the park, I'd almost pick the extra day of travel rather than staying in the park. Now, in Yellowstone, there is a vast range of really expensive options and more family-friendly, affordable options. And for a park like Yellowstone, Yellowstone is so big, staying in the park can save you two to four hours of driving a day, depending on where, you're, where you are, what you're trying to do in the park it is located compared to your hotel. Um, right now, the biggest gateway town is West Yellowstone because Gardner is currently inoperable, although Think they're putting in a road it, in even in a place like that that's so big sometimes it it might be worth to to stay in, in one gateway community and then stay in another one visit one half of the park and then the other park i always recommend at least moving at 
least once with Yellowstone if you're spending three or four days. Um, another one is like if you stay paying to stay in Yosemite, to stay in Yosemite Valley saves you so much time in dealing with traffic going through the entrance stations, driving into the park. You've already parked your vehicle for the day, so you have your parking space. Because I mean, the valley, I've, I haven't been to the valley in June or July since I was tiny, but I know from when I was there in October, it was a nightmare. Parking was a, a nightmare. And this was, you know, middle of the week, October, and it was still, everything was an issue. So staying in the valley at least lets you avoid that the parking issues because you're there. You've already got everything set up. You can use the bus system. It makes things a lot easier. So it's, you're paying a premium, but you're also going to be saving time. So it's, you got to balance your budget versus how much time you want to save. It might be worth it to save, you know, $300 a night to stay outside the park and have to put up with a little traffic for you. It's just where your budget is and how you want to make the best of your budget. We'll be back in a moment, but first a quick break for a message from our favorite place to search for the best campground for your national park adventures, Campendium. Campendium lists virtually every campground in North America and every type of campsite you can imagine. From remote backcountry tent sites to RV parks with water slides and pickleball courts, you can search by price, including free or by cell service, elevation, whether pets are allowed. Dozens of different search filters will bring you detailed user reviews so you can find the best campsite for your trip. Campendium is free at campendium.com or on the app and you can upgrade to a RoadPass Pro membership to unlock an ad-free experience with more detailed cell service reports, public land map overlays, trail maps, and more. A RoadPass Pro membership also includes other premium apps like Togo RV and Road Trippers. Visit Campendium.com or download the app today and save $10 off a RoadPass Pro membership with code RVMILES10X. So you mentioned traffic parks have been pretty busy for the last several years in the busy season. What are some of the ways that people can try to uh, avoid the crowds? The biggest thing is start early or start late. If you're going to do like a very popular hike, you should start early or you should start, you know, four to five ish in the afternoon, because at about four to five, most people who are spending the day in the park, are heading out. So you will have a better chance to enjoy the trail without um, tons of people. Now I will caveat that if it is a trail known for sunsets, that, that, that rule goes out the window because everyone hikes the trail for sunset. Um, but for uh, trails that aren't known for their sunsets, if you hike them late, there, there will be a lot less people. Same thing. Most people don't want to get up early. So if you're willing to hit the trail at before 7 a.m., you're going to have a much better, much less populated experience. Um, another thing is, you know, pick lesser known trails. If it's not on the top of everybody's bucket list, it's probably going to have a lot less people on it. My family really loves going in the late afternoon, mainly because we're not morning people. But but you're so right. In the In the late afternoon, people start heading out. They've got dinner plans. Um, they're not going to eat in the park. And it sounds like four or five o'clock is, is getting towards the end of the day. 
But if it's the summer, you have so much time before it's dark. So much. You can easily have four, five, six hours of sunlight. If you are hiking later, please carry a flashlight just in case you're out extra late and it gets dark on you. It's not that heavy. Carry a flashlight, a headlamp, something. Have a have a plan for if you're out after dark. So uh, let's talk about some of the resources available for people. Obviously, the National Park Service websites are are great place to start. Not not just for information about things that are happening right now, like road closures and stuff, but for figuring out what you're going to do. Yeah. Um, the biggest thing I use the Park Service websites for is pull up the park map. So you have the map and you can start looking at where things are because you should try to, as you're planning your day, cluster things together. Um, the less times you have to move your vehicle to park, you, you will have more time to spend doing things. So if you can park in one lot and hit three things, that means you've now got so much more time because you don't have to drive to the next site, find a parking space, which for some parts, that you could you could spend an hour circling lots looking for parking spaces. So if you can pick one spot or one area and focus that, you save so much time rather than trying to pick, okay, um, if you look at a map of Yellowstone, Yellowstone's huge. Oh, well, I want to hit Old Faithful, and then I want to go to the Grand Canyon, and then I want to go to Mammoth Hot Springs. That, that, that is so much driving between those three places. You're going to spend more of your day driving and trying to park than you are going to be able to see things. Versus if you do, you know, you hit Grand Prismatic and then do Old Faithful, you've hit two things. You still have to park in both places, but they're closer together, so you're not running across the park trying to do different things. And a lot of things that you're seeing, you're you're parking and then getting out and you might be walking 15 minutes or more even if it's not a trail to a site, you're you you have to get to it. Usually the parking lots aren't right next to the cool thing. Yeah, um I mean, Old Faithful has a parking lot there. Every time I'm there, I feel like the parking lots get more massive. But, I mean, it is one of the most popular areas in the park. And, I mean, I don't know how many people go through there a day, but it's a couple thousand easy. And, you know, so you do have to walk. And, you know, you're going to be walking. It could be upwards. of I've walked upwards of a mile to hit trailheads because the parking lot is four spaces. And I want to hike that trail and the parking lot's full. You know, so you yeah. need to factor that in. And if you can looking at the map as you're starting to map out what you do, it starts to become apparent that, oh, I want to do this. I want to do this. Okay, these three things are right together. So we'll do those day one. Okay, these three are together. We'll do those day two. And it starts filling itself in almost organically. What are some of the ways, though, that you, if you're totally unfamiliar with a place, that you decide you got a limited amount of time. What is worth it for you to see? What you want to see? What fits your wants and desires? You, you know, you're looking at a map and you see just names of places. How, what are some of the ways people can figure out what they actually just want to do when they know nothing about it? I always recommend Google it. Take a name of something. You know, let's take Death Valley. Um, throw Darwin Falls in, and you'll get. On the image tab, you'll get a whole bunch of images that are all of this waterfall in a valley that's called Death Valley. It's 
pretty interesting. It's got some really cool frogs in it. Um, you know, and then you might see some blog articles or some news articles or whatnot on what it is, give you a little bit and that can kind of help guide you. I mean, you can't visit a park without doing your research. Well, you can, but you really, really shouldn't. You should at least do a bare minimum amount of research. Um, I know, you know, I've put out a book on like a one page must see of all the parks, you know, so it hits, mm -hmm. you know, what's the must sees, what are the must do's, here's some of the suggested hikes to kind of give people a, here's the quick things that I think are the most, the coolest things to do in the park. And I have certain biases, that's just everyone has biases. Um, you know, and just kind of give you a starting point on here's what I think is cool. Go research it a little bit further, see some pictures, and then decide what you think is really cool to go do. It is important to do that work in advance often because you might not have any sort of cell service where you are in a park. Yeah. Um, and then if you're in a park last minute and you're trying to figure out what to do, stop by the ranger station, ask the rangers what they think is the most fun thing to do. Um, some rangers are really good. They'll tell you what they personally think is really cool. Other rangers will just tell you what everybody does, push them a little, and they'll give you their favorite thing to do most of the time. People work that work in gift shops and stuff. I have found that often there are really great resources for like the secret stuff that not everybody goes to. They know everything. So you have created, um, you, your website is nationalparkobsessed.com. And it's a, full of great resources for people looking to plan a trip. Lots of about information about lots of different parks, all the different parks. But you've created this trip planning bundle of ebooks. Tell us about that. Yeah. So it's um, two ebooks and a printable planner that I have taken all my years of planning experience, what I've seen, common questions and things in the group. And kind of boiled it down to here's the really important things you need. You'll have to get into each park to figure out because some parks have campsites, some parks don't. Some parks, their campsites are still first come, first serve. Some campsites are booked six months out. And it just it's it gives you an idea of how to get yourself organized to start planning those trips. And it talks about you know some safety stuff. Um, let's uh, let's pay, pay attention during the water around water so nobody drowns big thing uh don't pet the fluffy cows um everybody's all concerned about you know they worry about the bears the cougars the snakes what you do a little bit of what you do if you see one how to handle that and just how generally to be safe and to cover the intro questions people have on you know because for a lot of people they didn't grow up in the outdoors so this is new and it's really designed to help you get a little bit of comfort before you get there and just cover those things. And then, as I mentioned, there's the must-see book. It's the second ebook, which is just 63 pages of here's what I think you should do in each park. And, you know, a lot of, it's basically just a little checklist. And you can either use the checklist and do everything on that, or you can do some of the things on it and then find some other stuff. Just you do you. Um, and then the final part is the planner, which is just printable um, worksheets that I've made that you can guide you through. Here's your planning checklist. You know, here's what you should do uh, 18 months out. Here's what you should do 12 months out and things like that, as well as there's um, some itinerary planning pages so you can work out 
okay, I've got 14 days. Here's, here's what I want to do on each day and helps you kind of design your trip. Um, some research pages so you can start comparing hotels and hotel prices, and hotel locations, and just full of, chock full of information and things you may or may not have thought of. Because there's a lot of intricate things that you may or may not realize until you've planned three or four trips. And of course, I want to make sure to mention that your website is also full of lots of free information as well. You know, my website is um, entirely free. Um, there's a ton of free information from if you start planning Alaska parks, how much do some of these parks actually cost to get to and go into those numbers to, you know, here's the best hotels in Grand Canyon. There's a range of information for people at all stages of their national park journey jennifer melroy of national park obsessed thank you so much for joining us we'll link to the website in the description for the show and check out the website for sure and if you're planning a big national park trip please consider buying the ultimate national park planning bundle it's only 27 dollars. it's a good deal and it's full of great great information thanks so much for being here jennifer i'm happy to be here Great fun. This episode of America's National Parks was hosted by me, Jason Epperson. I'd like to thank Jennifer Melroy again for joining us. We'll link to her trip planning tools in the description. Don't forget to subscribe and follow us on Facebook and Instagram to search National Parks Podcast. You can also join our America's National Parks Facebook group. If you're interested in RV travel, check out RVMiles.com or find us on the RV Miles podcast. You can also follow Abigail and me as we travel the country with our three boys all over social media as our wandering family. Today's show was sponsored by L.L. Bean. Follow the hashtag BeAnOutsider and visit LLBean.com to find great gear for exploring the national parks. And by Campendium. Find listings and reviews for thousands of campsites for your next National Park adventure at campendium.com. Mm-hmm.